Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. Go ahead and subscribe or follow wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a rating or review. It makes a big difference. It helps other people know about the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, on to the show. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. What's up, guys? JD here, and I am so excited about today's guest. I'm talking to Sheena Chandaria, who runs Conross Corporation. Conross is a second-generation family business. And get this, they've been around since the 70s. Sheena's father, Naveen, built the company on a fire log business, came to Canada, started making fire logs, built that into one of the biggest fire log businesses in North America, sold it. In the meantime, while he was doing that, he brought glue sticks into North America. Glue sticks. So if you were using glue sticks in the US or Canada in the 1980s and 90s as a kid like I was, that's because of Sheena's father. Glue sticks didn't exist in this country before him. Brought glue sticks in, sold the glue stick company, and just kept building. Today, the company is run by the second generation, Sheena, her sister, and her brother. And it's an amazing story. And get this, this is my second time interviewing Sheena because the first time I interviewed her, it didn't record. But Sheena's a good sport. She's a good friend. She's actually my neighbor. So she was good enough to do this all over again. I enjoyed it even more the second time. You guys are going to love this conversation. Let me know what you think. Get me on Twitter. I'm at Real John Davids, R-E-A-L-J-O-N-D-A-V-I-D-S. You can get me on LinkedIn, TikTok, Instagram. Get me at johndavids.com and check out this conversation with Sheena Chandaria. Sheena, tell me about your company today. So Conros Corporation is a manufacturing distributor of stationary tapes and mailing and shipping products. We recently have a focus on sustainable products. So we've launched a line called Earth Hugger, which is a line of mailing and shipping products that are more earth-friendly, green. And basically the, the thought process behind it is to continue to evolve the line of products as technology evolves in that green space. Is that really big now, going green and being climate conscious in your space? It's definitely becoming a bigger focus. We actually, we had launched the line, I want to say six years ago, and we found that it was a little bit ahead of its time. Also, we find that the Canadian market is always a little bit in terms of this type of product. The Canadian market's usually a little bit ahead of the US market because I feel like Canadians are more green conscious than a lot of Americans, unfortunately. But yeah, so, so we'd launched it a few years back. And then it didn't really do so great. And then COVID hit. And I think as COVID hit, people were doing more mailing and shipping from home. They were setting up businesses. They were shipping out whatever they could just to earn some sort of a revenue income stream. And then it just started becoming more and more prevalent to have that type of technology. So I'm sure you notice if you get Amazon packages, you get the curbside recyclable packaging now. Yep. So that's kind of become a household term. And mm. yeah, post COVID, it's just become you know, more dominant to have that. And, and so we've evolved our line. So it's, it's actually since we first launched it, there's been a huge evolution in terms of the product line, in terms of the recyclable or recycled content that's used in the product and just generally the technology that's behind it. And so yeah. we've relaunched or we're in the midst of relaunching it now and just to, you know, get a renewed focus on it. 
So I have a hundred questions about that. I want to talk about it, but let's just back up for a second and tell everyone how you got to where you are today. So your family business is about 50 years old today. And tell me about how it started. Yeah, it's about almost 50 years old. It was my dad. My family's from East Africa. So my dad came here in the 70s, post Idi Amin, looking for opportunity. He was recently married. He was uh, just shy of 30. Stepping back a little bit further, my grandfather left India when he was like 12 years old came to East Africa because it was a natural evolution in terms of movement. We're from the West coast of India or from Gujarat, the Western state of India. And so to come across to East Africa, it's when they were doing the whole railroad development in East Africa. So a lot of Indians kind of came across. You'll see the whole Eastern seaboard of Africa is populated with Indians. So he came when he was 12 and him and his brother set up a business very slowly. You know, he was kind of, making candles by day and then laying sleeping on that bed that he made the candles on at nighttime. And he essentially, they, they built a business. And by the time his, like he sent all of his kids off. So my dad and his siblings were all sent off to school abroad, most of them in England. And as they started coming back from school, they, and from university, he said that he didn't really want them to come back and feel entitled. And so he, you know, by that point, he kind of built somewhat of an empire there and he didn't want them to come back feeling entitled. And mm-hmm. so he said, what I'm going to do is we're going to sell everything that we have. We're going to buy a house in the country. We're going to have one car for all of you. And there are six, six siblings and you guys are going to start fresh. And of course, they all thought that he was crazy. <laughs> Wow, that's a pretty dramatic move for somebody who wants to give their kids a fresh start. Literally start yeah, from scratch. Said, you know, you've got my name, you've got my line of credit, so to speak, whatever they had at that time. And so they started anew. They started building up a new company with the help of their father at the time. And then again, as you know, things started evolving there in the 70s, my dad kind of he's the second eldest from his generation. And he thought, let me look for a new opportunity overseas. And so at that point in the 70s, the natural segue was again to go west. And there were, you know, he looked at kind of the the immigration policies across across on this side. And a lot of people were leaving, going to England. And the immigration policy in Canada was very welcoming. So he came here. Okay. So your dad's in Canada now. He's got some background in business. Was he able to take any piece of the actual business he started into Canada? Or was it starting from scratch again? It was starting from scratch again. I mean, he did have some capital. He didn't necessarily bring any of the business, but he had capital. He had some business acumen by that point. Right. And obviously, he had the backing of his family back in East Africa. Okay, so he gets to Canada. And this is the part of the story I love. He decides to get into what business? He gets into manufacturing artificial fire logs. Artificial fire logs. Of course, it makes total sense. And what was the logic and the reason behind that? Well, yeah, because he's come from a warm climate and he's come here to a very cold country thinking, why have I come to this country and what can I do to keep myself warm? Right. And so he saw opportunity. There was a small factory out on the East Coast in Tobique and New Brunswick. And he saw opportunity to purchase this factory. Literally, when they would run the fire log manufacturing lines, the entire electricity from the whole city or the town, I guess would go down in order to run the lines. So he got into the space which had a dozen or 17 odd competitors 
and just, you know, he saw opportunity in it and he said, let's try it out. Like I said, he borrowed some capital from the family and they started him and he slowly, he started bringing his brothers over to help him. So he went to Canada first before his brothers. Exactly. Got it. So he basically acquired a fire log factory and starts building it up. And this is in the 70s. And over the course of a few decades, it gets pretty big. Yeah. So over the course of 30 years, he built it up to the point that in 2006, he sold the business to Jardin Home Brands. It was a very complimentary business for them because they do a lot of summer products. So they do Coleman coolers. They have a whole bunch of the whole line, a few lines of products that are like great for camping. And this was a great addition because A, it helped round out their assortment in terms of seasonality. And then also just, you know, even just in terms of like the camping gear and all that, just kind of have like some, you know, fire. And was he looking to sell at that point? Or was it like, you're getting offers here and there, but this one really just made sense? I think, I guess the thought process is, is that the business is always for sale. And so an offer came, it was put on the table and, you know, they had a room of consultants that helped them understand kind of the market and what was going on at the time. It wasn't necessarily everybody's will to sell the business, but it ended up being the right decision for the long term. So it's funny. You've actually said this to me before, Sheena. I don't know if you remember, but I've asked you before, is your company for sale or would you sell it? And your response was, well, it's always for sale. And I think that's a great point of view to have, by the way. But a lot of entrepreneurs are so emotionally tied to their business. It's a part of their identity. And they think, I would never sell. It's my baby. But you're actually coming to it from the other point of view. Is that a conscious thought or is that something you've always thought? I mean, we grew up, my dad kind of ingrained that in our heads. Don't get emotionally attached to your businesses. Like if the right offer is on the table, a business is always for sale. And of course, you make a decision based on dollars and cents. If you can make more money selling it today than you could running it for the next however many years. That's one factor. Is there anything else that goes into deciding whether or not to sell a business? Or is it really just a financial decision at that point? Yeah, I think, yeah. I think for the most part, it's a financial decision. It's probably a timing decision as well. You know, at the time that they decided to sell, one of my uncles was not doing great from a health perspective. And to be honest, like the next generation was all coming into the business, but because we wanted to learn, or at least our dads wanted to teach us about how to build a business, they didn't want to put us into the fire log business. And so because that business was running itself. So they wanted us, you know, they wanted to have a, call it a sandbox for us to play in, which is where we came across this business uh, in 2000, which was our tape and mailing and shipping products. And that's where, as we all started working for the family, we all went into that business. From a manpower perspective as well, I think they wanted to re-kind of focus the energy to something different. Okay, so there's a glue stick story. What is the glue stick story? Yeah, so in the 70s, we they started with the fire log business. And in the 80s, one of our partners from East Africa, Henkel, had an opportunity for a glue stick manu. They had a glue stick manufacturing facility in North America, and uh, they just weren't able to get it going in terms of in the market. Everybody was used to liquid glue to mucilage. They just nobody really was interested in the glue stick. And they approached, again, they approached my family asking, you know, is this something you'd be interested in? And my dad and his brothers looked at it as an opportunity that, hey, you know, in in Europe, the glue stick is the prevalent item. We can kind of help make that happen here in North America. So what was in North America at the time? Was it just liquid glue? 
liquid glue and mucilage that like it's like in a dark dark bottle it's, it's very like it looks very murky it's, it's some sort of a liquid glue but it okay. has like a rubber lid if you saw a picture of it you might recognize it's from like yeah it's literally from the early 80s you might recognize it from when you were a kid Okay, but nobody in the U.S. or Canada would have used a glue stick at that time. Yeah, unless they traveled to Europe. That's crazy because my earliest memories of kindergarten and grade one, we only ever used glue sticks. And that didn't exist before your family brought them to us. Okay, so they bring the glue stick here. And then how does that business evolve? So the way that they actually launched the glue stick in North America was that they took a liquid school glue bottle and within the mold of the bottle, they made a space for a glue stick. And one year at Back to School, which is your biggest season to sell glue, they convinced a few of the large retailers in the US to carry this product. And to be honest, they didn't change the UPC or anything from the regular liquid glue bottle. So it didn't create any issues on the shelf in terms of scanning through. And as people started buying that product, which was called the kangaroo pack, because it looked like a kangaroo with a little joey in its pouch, people started trying the glue stick. Hmm. And that's how they infiltrated the marketplace with the glue stick. And so that business evolved. And that was under Ross Adhesives or American Glue Company in the US. And and so was that the name of your family's company, Ross Adhesives? Yeah. So the fire logs were under Pine Mountain brand and Northland brand in Canada. The glues were under Ross adhesives. It was a blue with a blue label with yellow writing on it. You may recognize that. Yeah. And so they grew that business over the course of about 15 years. Mm-hmm. And around 2000, as we were looking to buy the tape company to help build that business, take it to the next level, it would be very complimentary. Elmer's came knocking on our door and essentially said that they weren't going to leave until they bought that business. <laughs> Okay, so fire logs, glue sticks. Are there any other big companies that you were involved with before Conross as it is today? No, so Conross has always been our parent company and we've just had brands underneath it, I would call it. But no, those were, I guess, the three big ones that we've had. There have been other various brands underneath as well, but like Citronella, we had Citronella candles and things like that. We had some extension cords at one point. There was a whole host of things as I grew up that I remember we'd you know, kind of dabble in certain things and they'd come and go. But these were the big ones that kind of stuck, along, stuck around for a while. Okay. So in the early 2000s, the second generation gets involved. And I know it's you, your sister, and your brother. Is there anybody else? When we first started, my cousin was also involved. Okay. So there was four of you involved. And what was that year one or day one on the job? What did they have you doing? So when I first started, so I started now in 2005 when I graduated from university and I already had three, like my sister, my brother, and one cousin were already in the business at the time. And I started in October and a couple of months into it, we were handed a big, a big bid for one of our customers. And so it was one of the major stationary office supply stores, superstores in the US. And so Everyone was kind of bogged down with everything. And they looked at me and they said, Hey, Sheena, you know, you go handle this. Can you go get pricing on everything that they have on that bid and, you know, figure it out and we can help you. We're here to support, but, you know, you figure it all out, get all the suppliers lined up and we'll put the bid together and send it out to the customer. And it was a customer that we already did some product for us. We did packaging tapes, but there was a whole host of new products that we'd never even like gotten into. And so here I am kind of figuring my way through this. 
you know, reaching out to suppliers, Googling suppliers that I've never even heard of for products that I barely even know what it is. And eventually we ended up landing an eight-digit contract. That's amazing. So just to get a better sense of the business, and I'm sure it's changed from 2005 until today, but you're basically selling what to who? Give me just the mechanics of the business. So we sell uh, stationary tapes, packaging tapes, mailing and shipping products. So mailers, bubble boxes, anything that you'd use to mail and ship or move. And we sell that to retailers across the US and Canada. And we sell it in our brand, which is Seal It or Earth Hugger or in private brands. So white label, like the store brand. And so, for example, you know, Loblaws, Staples, Grand & Choi in the US, which is where most, most of our business is. You've got Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, got uh, Target. So if you're looking at bubble wrap on the shelf, you might see the store brand and then your brand and you guys probably make them both. Yes. Got in it. some cases, we make. Okay. Do you also sell to the Amazons of the world? Yeah, we do. Got it. So it sounds like you sell to the retailer who then sells to the customer or you sell to the business who's using it themselves, but you don't ever sell directly to the customer. We don't sell directly to the customer. It's always been a focal point because we don't want to compete with our own customers. And so we don't sell directly to the consumer. And to be honest, it's, it's a very difficult business to manage once you start doing the small dollars. A lot of our product is all under $10. And so to mail it, you know, to ship it out to anyone, it really ends up making, yeah. you know, you end up spending more time on it than it's worth. You know, we'd rather redirect consumers that come to us to our own customers, send them out to a Walgreens or a Walmart and go, you know, go yeah. pick yeah. up our product from there. That's so funny because a lot of I talk to a lot of young entrepreneurs, and what many of them are attracted to is building D to C companies. And so, you know, they think, oh, I want to have ten thousand customers, or I want to have a hundred thousand customers and sell them all something. And I've always been in the enterprise space, and so for me, unless a deal is worth like fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, I'm not interested in it because it's the same amount of work to sell something, whether it's thousand dollars, five, ten, twenty, fifty, a hundred thousand. And the enterprise space has that advantage. And the $100 deals have the customers that complain the most. It's funny. It works in the inverse. A $100,000 customer complains less than the customer spending $100. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So you're into the second generation now. And let's fast forward. What does the business look like today? Who's actually running it? So my sister is... She's a president of our company. My sister and I are the two that are involved in the operating business on a day-to-day basis. And my brother, he manages our portfolio. So he's, you know, he runs our family office. So we'll get to the investment side in a second. But I want to ask you about the main business today, the operating company. Quick break here while I tell you about something really exciting I've been working on called the Business Essentials Kit. Here's the deal. I get asked all the time, John, how do you run your business effectively? What's the best way to build a website? How do I get a branded email? How do I save on legal fees? How do I manage my social media? So what I've done is I put a kit together for you for free. You can download it at johndavids.com with all the tools and services that I use to run my business. Get it right now for free at johndavids.com. So obviously, there's an advantage that you have because of the size that you are. But are there any other advantages or is it really a commoditized marketplace where everyone's fighting for dollars? 
it can be very commoditized. So it's actually a very tough business because we've, we're at a point where with the global economy, we compete with our own customers in a lot of ways because they've now, a lot of them have opened global sourcing offices directly in Asia. And because we are no longer necessarily core manufacturers of a lot of the product that we sell, it ends up impacting us in a lot of ways. Like you say, we end up being commodities. So what we do is we find ways, whether it's with different dispensers or we also have a warehouse in uh, Michigan. And so we have, we find ways to add, we have, like we have to find ways to add value to our customers to ensure that we're still relevant. Otherwise we're, you know, we're just another layer in yeah. their sourcing. I guess one of those ways is having a brand that consumers ask for in the store. Exactly. So when you say that your customers become your competitors, it's because they're going to your suppliers for the same business and not even necessarily knowing that they're your suppliers, but they just happen to put the RFP out there and your suppliers get it. And why did you stop manufacturing? Were you manufacturing at one point and then you stopped or have you never manufactured? We were manufacturing here when we first started in the business. And even when I, you know, when I joined in 2005, we're still manufacturing. And over the course of about the last 15 or 12 years, we've just kind of evolved with pricing, with labor rates here, with automation. It hasn't necessarily made sense to keep the business here. And so we've moved a lot of, and just even with like machine maintenance and, and things like that, it's just, it's made more sense to move it out to Asia. Mm-hmm. So we've got, you know, very tight relationships with our partners out there. And we, yeah, we work with them to ensure that we've got the best product for our customers and really to ensure that we've got the best, I guess, the best package as a whole. Can you be disrupted by technology? Are you a business that is susceptible to a lot of tech disruption? Or do you think at the end of the day, it's a tactile product, people are just going to use it, and it's not really something that people are going to turn to technology for? I mean, and the biggest thing on that front is really the fact that people are going, there's a more conscious effort to go paperless, which means that people aren't necessarily using mm-hmm. tape as much. People are buying gift cards or e-sending gift cards. And so we're, you know, we're not seeing people gift wrapping as much or a lot of the, like you say, the tactile things are kind of going away. Mm-hmm. And so we struggle with that, but COVID was, you know, there's definitely some impact of COVID to us as well as kids weren't in school. People weren't buying as many school supplies. But again, as, as the world opens up again, and, you know, we saw we had a decent back to school season this year. And, you know, we're hoping that it's kind of on the up and up again from here. And as people are getting more excited to see each other, you know, gifts are, you know, becoming more plentiful again. And yeah. gift wrapping is more important because, again, you want to hand something to somebody that shows like the time and effort that you've put into it rather than just emailing a gift card. Of course, it makes a huge difference. You know, somebody goes out and takes the time to buy a postcard and write a note on it. That's a big difference than just sending an email to somebody. I want to talk about the other side of the business, which is the family office. So your family will invest money into other businesses. How do you run that side of the business? And how do you make those decisions? If you want to invest in something, is that a decision that you make as a family? Or is your brother running that business, making those decisions on his own? No. So we have a board. We have in recent years, literally in the last 2 years or so, we've streamlined the process a lot better. And so we actually have a board. We make decisions together on all the investments. Is it a family board or are there outside members as well? 
mostly family with one family advisor as well. That's not a family member. And are you looking for any kind of investments in particular? Or is there a certain lane that you stay in? I mean, we look at all the different buckets that we can play in. And we try to ensure that it's balanced properly. You know, we don't want to be weighing too heavily on any one thing. But yeah, we've got some parameters. It's still a bit, it's still a work in progress, but we do have some parameters in place to help guide us through it. And then a lot of it's just really, you know, we don't want to be too bureaucratic about it. So really, if that opportunity looks right, you know, as long as it's not a crazy amount, it doesn't like, you know, surpass the threshold in Mm -hmm. some crazy form that for the most part, if it looks like a good opportunity, you know, we're usually all hands on board. And so when you're talking about a family office, and I'll just explain for the audience, a family office is run basically like a private equity firm, but the money is literally all belonging to one family. So it's run like a family business, but obviously more sophisticated because you're talking about usually a lot of money. And when you're running a family office, usually you split it into different buckets. So you might have a portion of the capital that's going to investments like real estate or bonds. You might have a piece of the investment that's going to public market equities. And then, of course, you'll have a bucket that's going to more risky investments like venture capital and startups. Are you guys making decisions together about all those things? Or is a lot of it just handled by by professionals and you're more so deciding on the more risky stuff? No, we discuss all of it. We have money managers that we use as well. And so, you know, they'll do quarterly sit downs with us, explain to us what's happening. You know, we all want to be knowledgeable about it. So we're all trying to spend as much time on it as possible. Obviously, with my brother as kind of the main point person on it. And he's the one that really we rely on him to bring us the information. But yeah, we all I mean we all participate in all ways. So you talked earlier about how your grandfather raised your your father and his siblings in a way where he built this great company, but then said to them, you're not actually getting this company. You're going to start from scratch. And that's one way to do it. It's, you know, it's a great way to, I guess, you know, make sure that your kids don't grow up with too much privilege or feeling like they're going to have everything served to them on a platter. How were you raised? And, and how do your parents make sure that you still had a work ethic and a drive? Because you know, if you're born into privilege, the downside of that, it's, you know, it's great to have a lovely life. The downside is that you don't necessarily have a great drive or work ethic for yourself. So how were you raised in a way where clearly you're a hard worker? How did your parents ensure that and instill that in you? To be honest, growing up, we always felt very lucky. But we were just, you know, we were kind of raised I don't know, like for example, you know, our, our summers, a lot of the kids here went to summer camp. We all went back to Africa. We went to Kenya. We'd spend our summers in Kenya. And it was obviously, it was a privilege, but you know, you go there and you kind of see the difference and you see how people live over there versus how they live here. You know, it was, again, we were still very lucky because we got to spend time with our family. We got to bond with cousins from who now live around the world. But it's really, it, it was a very, I guess, a very different upbringing where, we were just raised in a way, you know, we didn't have all the fancy toys always. We didn't have all the newest stuff, all the newest gadgets and tools that were out there. But we got to go on nice trips. And that was always a privilege because my dad was traveling five, six days a week. Mm-hmm. And so the days, you know, when he would be able to take us on a trip and we get to spend time with him, that was, we always felt lucky being able to do that. But it was just, I don't know how, <laughs> I don't really know how to explain it. it was, yeah, what it sounds like, and I've heard other people say this um, who had similar upbringings, is that when you're a kid, you have no point of reference for having a little money, having a lot of money. 
you just have your own life. So you have your house and you have your school and you have the car and you have the backyard and you have your activities. And as somebody else looking in, an adult can look in and go, oh, that's a beautiful house or that's a luxury car. But as a kid, you don't know that. And so to you, if you're raised in a, you know, a normal... I shouldn't say normal, but if you're raised in a loving, supportive family, that's just your upbringing and you don't necessarily know anything else. For us, to be honest, the most, most important thing that we grew up with was really just to be around our family. Like I said, it was my dad and two of his brothers mainly that ran the businesses here. And literally between, especially my dad's one brother, who was really his right-hand man, his, two of his kids were, you know, one of them was two years older than me. One of them was one year younger than me. But between the three of us, so my two siblings and myself and those two boys, like the five of us really just grew up as one unit. And like, you'd always just find us at one of the two houses. And it was really just about being together. Was it a given that you'd all grow up to be working in the business? Or was that something you figured out later? Or was there a conversation around that? I think it was a given. I didn't find out until I was about (laughs) 12 or so. At breakfast one morning, my dad explained something to me that I'd be working in the glue business. And I looked at him and said I had zero interest in working in the business. And I was always the, call it the tree hugger in the family. And my dad looked at me and said, you're always going to be a tree hugger. You know, when are you going to do something else? (laughs) And that didn't end very well. But to be honest, as we, as we started growing up and going to university and coming back one by one, we actually, my dad and his brothers made a deal with us that, you know, we've given you a private school education. We've sent you all off to university. And really all we want is two years of your life. And so come and spend two years working in the business. And if at the end of the two years, we think it's a good fit and you think it's a good fit, then we can talk about going forward. And if it doesn't work out, then that's fine. But at least we spent those two years together and we figured out that it's not going to be a fit. So unfortunately, so as I joined in 2005, like I said, we sold the Firelog business in 2006. So just less than a year after I joined, it was actually on my birthday in September of 2006. And then with the sale of the Firelog company, the family kind of split up. And so one brother who wasn't well, he kind of took some time off to take care of his health. My dad's youngest brother decided to you know go off and he's now running a successful business in he is actually back in Kenya running a business there with a couple of his kids under his wing and at that point it was really just my dad and the three of us and my dad at that point wanted to retire and so it was really at that point like we just didn't really have a choice but then going forward so and then how do you think about it in terms of raising your children now you've got young kids how do you think about raising them in the business and do you want them working in the business is that important to you so we've actually we've been talking about this and it's part of some of the things that we talk about as I guess the, f- the family office side of what we're doing and I guess more of the the legacy as a family that we want to leave and so part of it is really you know if, once you start evolving and again we're still kind of right at the very beginning of this but as you evolve the different pieces of what you need to do as a family to build your legacy you know you've got your philanthropic wing you've got the operating business if you continue to have one you've got you know any the family office side you've got all the different buckets and you know education all that and in our next generation we've got eight grandkids right now or eight kids and so the eldest is 13 the youngest is my little one who's 18 months and as they grow up I think the most important as we've started identifying it is that 
it's not as important for them to necessarily need to work in the business, but for everybody to understand that they can all play a role in the family side of it. And as we understand each child's strengths to really ensure that we're showcasing it and that we're helping them thrive in the space that they're in. So if, you know, the kid wants to be a doctor, let them be a doctor, but maybe they still want to participate in certain things. And it would obviously look different for each kid based on that in terms of their shareholding or um, I guess their involvement like that. Mm -hmm. But, but, you know, just to ensure that everybody feels like they can play a part, have a role. What's it like to work with your family? There's you, your sister, and your brother. Do you work with your brother on a daily basis or not so much? Uh, Not so much on a daily basis. So it's you and your sister working in the operating business. And do you guys get along? Did you always get along? Yeah, actually, it's actually worked out well for us because we're very complimentary where you know there are certain things that I lack. I would say my sister fills in for me and certain things that she lacks, I feel like I fill in for her. And we've actually done some of those different, you know, the work personality tests through, you know, various schemes that are out there. And they've all come back saying the same thing. And it's, I think it's great from that perspective that it's the two of us there because, for example, she's very much people person. She likes like her, you know, she's been working so hard on the culture of the company for the last few years. Whereas uh, (laughs) I am definitely one of the less I'd say I have the lesser EQ out of the two of us. I'm, you know, very straight to the point. So you're you're very straight to the point. I don't know if anyone's told you this, but you're very direct, straight to the point, but you're also very good with people. You're very social. And so you've got a good balance, actually. You're very good with people, but you're very direct as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which doesn't always work in a company setting. But yeah, and then like certain things like I, you know, I I love looking at the detail and you know that's really what I do on our on anything that comes onto my plate. Are you a numbers person or not so much? Sometimes numbers really just yeah it's it's really just like anything that comes to my plate. I joke with Jay about how you know I'm kind of the legal department in our company as well. And so oh, really <laughs> and then I and then I So you like to review contracts too. I look at the contracts, so yeah, everything that that comes through the the customer agreements, contracts with our suppliers really anything that gets signed off and now comes through me, whether it's just internal company memos, like everything, everything comes through me. You're the filter. Yeah, exactly. And your brother, is that, is he running the family office as a one man show or is there a bigger operation there too? So we have a, we have a CFO, we have my brother, Sunir, and then we've recently just hired a VP of finance to support them. And we're looking to hire one more person to kind of round that team out. When you're running a family business, I'm just thinking about this. When you have business partners, usually you have you choose the business partners and you have a contract with those partners and there's some form of dispute resolution. And if there's not, things tend to get really, really messy. But when you're running a business as a family, A, you don't get to choose those partners. Those people were born into those roles. And when there are disputes, you're a family. So it doesn't, you know, you could have a contract, this and that, but you have to live with these people. So do you guys have any ground rules for how you address disputes, how you make decisions as a unit? So for the most part, we've been fairly aligned. We've also learned from the last generation and 
We are in the midst of finalizing a shareholders agreement between the three of us, just to ensure that in case, you know, the whole idea is that while things are good, you put these contracts in place so that if things go bad, at least, you know, everybody can have some sort of ground rules to work off of. And in that it would dictate any, you know, if there are any big decisions that need to be made, kind of how the voting system works and all that. But up until now, I mean, for the most part, between the three of us and, you know, we've had the good fortune of having my dad and we still have one uncle that that's also been, you know, helping out. And then, like I said, we've got a family advisor Like between all of that generation. We've also been fortunate enough to have enough advice to help us through. So all the businesses that your family has been involved with, from fire logs to glue sticks to adhesives and packaging materials, it's all very physical. It's very tactile. It's real world. Have you guys looked into technology, cybersecurity, artificial intelligence? Are those things that you've explored as investments or as businesses that you'd want to be in? Or are those outside your wheelhouse? So... On the cybersecurity front, we actually have another leg of our business as part of the family office in cybersecurity. So if you need somebody, let me know. (laughs) But that's a a bit of a separate entity that's being run. And again, we're a major investor in that. And we actually, we use that same program in our own for our OPCO and just for our technology company-wide. And then just from an AI standpoint, I mean, we're looking at... And again, this is going down to like the minute detail of it, but we're looking at how to utilize artificial intelligence and really like taking over some of the mundane day-to-day tasks that we do. So uh, using these bots that can, you know, when you've got the repetitive tasks that are going on just to help free up some of our team members' time. Are you talking about in a warehouse setting? No, not even... This is like computer bots that you got people at a computer that are doing the same thing day in, day out, or, you know, like taking an order and putting it into the system and checking the inventory and, you know, whatever that process is and, you know, utilizing these bots that essentially they sleep and then they wake up and they get told, Hey, there's an order in the system, wake up, like go deal with that. Um, So we're looking at that. And then even just in terms of like forecasting, you know, because obviously we forecast product that we bring in for our customers. So how do we utilize some of that artificial intelligence to help understand what's going on in the market and how to translate that into managing our inventory better. (laughs) So you're using tech to run your businesses, which makes a lot of sense. Do you see in 10 or 20 years from now, the makeup of your investments being more tech related? I mean, again, like we, I think we're open to exploring kind of all, all ideas. Yeah. And so, I mean, there will most likely be some sort of a shift towards more technological products, say, but, but you know, there like you say, there really is, and I guess it's been tried and tested. You know, you have your real estate, like you know that that's going to work. You have, there are certain pillars that you know that you don't, you know, you may not really touch, but, you know, to try new things, I wouldn't say it's completely crazy. Mm-hmm. Well, this was awesome, Sheena. This was a great conversation for the second time. I really enjoyed this. Anything else you want to share with us about Conross or any of the great products that you have in market? You know, we, I was recently at a talk for, for Citibank, actually, and they had Bill Clinton come in and speak. And he made a great analogy just and something maybe just a takeaway, but just to focus on addition and multiplication rather than subtraction and division. So you kind of take that thought and you apply it to all the various pieces of your life. And I think it's a great thought 
to leave you with. That's a great point. And I'll add to that, not that I want to top Bill Clinton, but I feel like there's a lot of people listening now who are entrepreneurs and business owners. And one key mindset shift or a mindset that you need to have as a successful entrepreneur is the mindset of abundance. You're not trying to steal or cut or take share from this guy or that guy. Maybe sometimes you are. But a lot of the time, you're actually creating new markets. You're creating new opportunity. You're making a bigger pie. Look at the GDP of any growing country. It goes up every single year. More consumers, more businesses are spending more money. And there's more opportunity for everybody to go around. Most things in life are not zero-sum. There's plenty of opportunity. Right. And how do you evolve your business or evolve whatever it is that you're doing in order to really capitalize on some of that? Bang on. Okay, Sheena, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, John. All right. That was really good. That was a different conversation from the first time. (laughs) It was. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, leave a rating or review on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps other people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. We'll talk to you guys next time.